you can't just take part of the Constitution and say you don't want to take it seriously. Either the Constitution is the law of the land, or it isn't. And in a year like this, when the future of democracy around the world mm. and the future of the rule of law is basically up for grabs, yep. to take that position, that is a formula for ripping our democracy apart. That's what's at stake in this new year, 2024. Yeah. So, happy 2024. Glad you could make it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Glad I could make it. I got the feeling that something ain't right. You know what I I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and many other fine affiliates that I do not have time to read today because we've just got that much show for you as we're trying to get into 2024 late, but we're here. Welcome to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Welcome back to the Bradcast in 2024 and our long-awaited return after the holidays. Uh, kicking off the new year, it seems, with both crime and COVID. <sighs> All around us. Happy New Year's. Uh, some of you may have heard uh, 2024 is already getting off to a rip roaring start around here as Desi Doyen brought back more than just Christmas gifts from Texas over the holidays. Yes, after four years of both of us dodging it, Desi finally tested positive for COVID just after the turn of the new year. So happy 2024, Des. She is doing mostly fine. She was fully vaxxed and boosted, so that undoubtedly helped a lot. So she is suffering largely with mild cold-like symptoms and, and getting better by the day, I think, since getting some Paxlovid in her. I, for my part, am still testing negative for now. I would love to keep it that way. We will see how it goes, however. Uh, so we've been off until today as we were figuring out how and if we can do shows at all in the interim here, to be frank. I think we have figured out how to pull off at least today's show, sort of. But we will be taking it day by day over the next few days. Please forgive us for any absence in those coming days if they must occur uh, Desi is not in the studio for the moment, but we did figure out how to produce our first Green News report of the new year. We'll have that coming up for you later this hour. So, uh, yeah, 2024, so far so good. I'm sure it'll get nothing but better from here, right? I'll also be joined momentarily uh, and remotely by two guests today, two of them, one of whom is also getting over his own bout with COVID, as luck would have it. Uh, but we pick up 2024 largely where 2023 ended with the ever increasing pace of attempted accountability for our former scofflaw president and the incredibly still current GOP frontrunner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. That would be Donald Trump. 
A new report out from the Congressional Democrats on Thursday finds that foreign nations gave at least $7.8 million to Donald Trump's businesses while he served as president. With China leading the list, giving some $5.5 million in emoluments, payments, in apparent violation of the Constitution's Emoluments Clause to the sitting president's companies. Saudi Arabia made the second largest sum of payments uh, to Trump's businesses while he was in office, followed by uh, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, all according to this new report. All of that, even as the government's, quote, were promoting specific foreign policy goals with the Trump administration, according to this 155-page report. The probe into those payments, however, was dropped entirely when Republicans took over the House Oversight Committee majority at the beginning of 2023, even as they continue an impeachment probe of Joe Biden uh, based on the foreign business dealings of his son, Hunter, while the then former vice president was not even in office. That inquiry to date has revealed no evidence of personal profit by Joe Biden. By way of just one example of apparently, uh, well, apparent impropriety uh, and the reason why the emoluments clause banning gifts from foreign government exists in the first place, according to information available to the committee, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, ICBC, one of the China's biggest state-owned banks, was among Trump Tower's largest office tenants during the Trump presidency. The report notes that during Trump's first year in the White House, several Chinese banks, including ICBC, came under scrutiny for financial ties to North Korea, causing the administration to weigh imposing sanctions against them. Well, that didn't happen, despite calls from members of the Republican Party to implement maximum pressure against those banks to halt the North Korean nuclear program. Quote, then President Trump and his administration did not take any formal action against Trump Tower tenant ICBC. Thus, the emoluments clause which I guess can be ignored. We know that Donald Trump has never been a big fan of the U.S. Constitution or the rule of law, at least as it applies to him. And so, uh, well, when we last signed off from our final show of last year, the news had literally just broken minutes before we signed off that the Colorado Supreme Court had barred Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot under the 14th Amendment, Section 3 prohibition for holding office by those who had previously sworn an oath to support the Constitution, but then broke that oath by engaging in insurrection. As I was able to read during our holiday break, the Colorado Supreme's nearly 200-page ruling meticulously breaks down the Constitution's insurrectionist disqualification clause and how Trump had, in fact, violated it. Specifically, the court cited the actual text of the clause and its original meaning at the time that the 14th Amendment was studied, written, debated, and then adopted by the Republican Congress in the wake of the Civil War. The Colorado court was clearly anticipating review by the U.S. Supreme Court, and they focused their arguments on the textualism and the originalism, the, the meaning of the words and the intent of the framers at the time of passage, which modern-day so-called conservative justices on the high court now claim to believe in as if it was a religion. 
But maybe they're not so interested in that religion anymore. We will find out soon enough. Since the Colorado ruling, the Secretary of State of Maine has similarly disqualified Trump from that state's ballot, finding him in violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Also, as we had begun to warn about nearly two years ago, back in February of 2022, when few, if any, had even heard of the Constitution's Insurrection Disqualification Clause, the decision by the Maine Secretary of State was quickly appealed to the state's high court by Team Trump last week. The Colorado Republican Party appealed that ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on Wednesday of this week, as reported by The New York Times, former President Donald J. Trump asked the U.S. Supreme Court to keep him on the primary ballot in Colorado, appealing the ruling which declared him ineligible based on his efforts to overturn the 2020 election that culminated in the January 6, 2021 attack at the U.S. Capitol. That ruling, Trump's lawyers wrote, marked, quote, the first time in the history of the United States that the judiciary has prevented voters from casting ballots for the leading major party presidential candidate. The Colorado Supreme Court decision, they argue, would unconstitutionally disenfranchise millions of voters in Colorado and likely be used as a template to disenfranchise tens of millions of voters nationwide. They noted that, quote, the main secretary of state in an administrative proceeding has already used the Colorado proceedings as justification for unlawfully striking President Trump from that state's ballot. Trump's petition attacks the Colorado ruling on many grounds, among them arguing that the events culminating in the assault on the Capitol were not actually an insurrection at all. That Section 3 does not apply to the presidency because they claim the president is not a, quote, officer of the United States, an argument previously dismantled by the Colorado court, which cited the 25 times elsewhere in the Constitution that the presidency is, in fact, described as an office. And the argument that, believe it or not, I found this to be somewhat compelling. We'll see if my guests agree that while 14.3 bars someone who has engaged in insurrection from holding office, it doesn't actually prevent them from running for office. Yes, that's the argument the Trump team is making. And it may seem absurd, but the Trump attorneys argue that since the same constitutional clause also allows Congress to remove the insurrectionist ban against certain officials by a two-thirds vote of Congress, that it would be wrong to disqualify Trump now from the ballot since Congress could, if they wanted, after, for example, he is elected, remove that prohibition for him. Trump's appeal, of course, adds to the growing pressure on the U.S. Supreme Court to act quickly, given the number of challenges to Trump's eligibility and the need for a nationwide resolution of the question as the primaries approach. In fact, the Iowa caucuses will take place now in just over a week's time. On Monday, January 15, followed by the nation's first primary in New Hampshire in about three weeks' time on, this, uh, on uh, Tuesday, January 23. The six Republican and unaffiliated Colorado voters who had prevailed in that state's Supreme Court have filed their own motion at SCOTUS urging the justices to put the case on an exceptionally fast track. But a ruling 
on 14.3 is just one of at least three big issues that are now coming before the Supreme Court and likely coming very quickly in the days and weeks ahead. In addition to 14.3, there is the matter of Trump's argument that so-called presidential immunity from prosecution actually exists for any and all crimes committed while serving as president. That argument was easily dismantled by U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin in Special Counsel Jack Smith's federal case against Trump related to his various attempts to steal the 2020 election. But Trump has appealed it to the D.C. court and then likely to the Supreme Court. Until that matter is decided, the scheduled March 4 trial date is currently on hold, which could end up pushing the entire trial back beyond and after the election, which is, of course, Trump's strategy and his hope. And there is the question of whether the law used to charge hundreds of January 6 insurrectionists for obstructing an official proceeding may be applied at all to either them or to Trump. And whether the law originally adopted to combat financial crimes may be used in any January 6 related case. If not, that, too, could be a problem when it comes to accountability for Donald J. Trump, since two of the four criminal counts charged against him by uh, uh, Jack Smith in the federal election interference case are related to that same obstruction statute. Now, those are just some of the legal matters that I hope to get caught up a bit uh, on with our two guests today who We'll see if time now allows. I also hope to ask about some non-Trump-related matters as well, but we will see. Joining us now to help us ease our way back onto the 2024 superhighway, uh, two attorneys and longtime friends of the broadcast. Lisa Graves is the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org, where she has spearheaded several major breakthrough investigations over the years into those distorting American democracy and public policy. She is also a former deputy assistant attorney general at the U.S. Justice Department, where she served as a former chief counsel for nominations in the U.S. Senate and a former deputy chief for the Article Three Judges Division of the U.S. Court System. Oh, Lisa Graves, Happy New Year and welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Brad. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Thank you, and thanks for uh, holding my hand as we walk into this brave new year. Another old friend is, uh, of course, Keith Barber, a frequent Daily Coast contributor on legal and constitutional matters, where he is known as simply Keith D.B., he is now a retired attorney, and at least until Trump came along, he was a lifelong Republican based in Florida, though today he happens to be here in Los Angeles. Nonetheless, still unable to join us in studio due to his own bout with COVID over the past week and, of course, Desi's. Keith Barber, Happy New Year, and I hope you are similarly as Desi on the uh, hopeful mending end of the virus. Uh, a happy and healthy New Year to you, Brett. Thank you, sir. Uh, we could use it around here. All right, Lisa, let me start with you. Uh, in, in his appeal uh, to the Supreme Court, Donald Trump's attorneys have thrown pretty much everything at the wall, as I said, uh, to, to make the case that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment simply does not apply to Donald Trump or even to the office of the presidency itself. Do you find 
any argument in there that uh, folks on the right, uh, that uh, Team Trump is making in their filing with the Supreme Court, that the Colorado Republican Party is making with their filing, any argument that his friends on that corrupted high court might somehow be able to, uh, you know, let him off the hook for having engaged in insurrection. Well, I think if this court were to follow the law, there's no way they could find in his favor on this, in my view, because the 14th Amendment language is very clear. The history of the 14th Amendment in terms of how it's been applied is also very clear. There's never been a requirement that you have to be convicted of a crime in order to be barred from office. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite clear, as the Colorado Supreme Court enumerated, that it applies to uh, the officers of the government, including, obviously, the president, who... Uh, in some ways is is uh, perhaps the most important person to take the oath to defend the United States, to defend our Constitution from enemies, foreign and domestic. And, you know, that's the very oath that Trump, in my view, so plainly violated with his actions, not just on January 6th, but leading up to January 6th, as we've, as we've seen in recent recently released recordings of his, mm-hmm. as well as other evidence that's been produced in these other complaints. And so... If uh, Supreme Court judges, the faction, the sort of GOP six that have been appointed to the court, if they were to actually follow the law, if they were to follow the text, if they were to follow the history of the application of Section 3 of uh, the 14th Amendment, they would affirm the Colorado Supreme Court decision and, and Maine's as well. But this court has shown this, not the whole court, but these sort of mega justices or these this right-wing faction that is now... Uh, dominating the court, they mm-hmm. have shown contempt for legal precedence and for language when it doesn't suit their political ends. And so it remains to be seen about whether this court, this um, Roberts court, will actually follow the law where it leads, which is to the conclusion that the Colorado Supreme Court found, or whether they will try to interject their own personal political agenda to try to protect Trump. And just one last thing on yeah. that, which is to say, uh, certainly the case that uh, among the the challenges that this court faces is a deep challenge to its credibility based on all the evidence so far in this past year of the you know ethical scandals surrounding the court, but in particular, uh, Clarence Thomas to even consider sitting on this case given the role of his wife in trying to urge that the voters will in 2020 be supplanted by Trump. I mean, he certainly should recuse himself if he had any ethics. I don't believe he does. But, <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what do you make of the, um, yeah, I, I don't know if he will or if he won't, but if you're going to frame it as if he had any ethics, then I'm going to assume Clarence Thomas will not recuse himself. What do, what do you make of the argument uh, from Team Trump that the 14th Amendment bars those uh, from holding office if they've engaged in uh, in insurrection, but not from running for office. Now, when I read that, I thought, well, that's a ridiculous claim. But then they make the point that in the same clause, uh, the third section, it says that Congress may remove this uh, prohibition by a two-thirds vote. Well, if he runs, if he wins, Congress could go ahead and remove that uh, uh, requirement by a two-thirds vote. Do they have anything there in that argument? I don't think so. I mean, when you look at the language, the idea that that someone would run uh, and then after they were to win, Congress were to then vote by two-thirds to remove remove that ban, Mm -hmm. it's just sort of 
in the wrong order uh, as a matter of time and chronology. The fact is, is that historically what happened um, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War was that people who were um, active in the uh, Confederacy, not Jefferson Davis himself, the president of the Confederacy, but others mm -hmm. um, in the Confederacy sought to have Congress basically repeal their bar. They wanted to um, be involved in politics or get back involved in politics. And that would happen before um, they ran. There was no notion that they could just run and then and then Congress would retro basically decide after the fact that they could hold that seat. Mm. And so it's just an extraordinary claim on their part to try to Im impose it in that way, in my view. Um, and I think if you read the con the Constitution, that provision in its sort of natural order and natural sequence, they said that they are barred. They are not allowed to hold office. And then there's a way to get them to be to have that disability removed, and it would be Congress voting to do so. So if Trump were at some point in the future to be able to get Congress to remove his disability, uh, then he would run for office, but not before. Uh, of course, that's if, they, that's if they... Well, hang on, Keith. I got a question on this very point yeah. for you, because I was going to say to, uh, to Lisa, that's, of course, if they follow the originalist textualist reading of the, of the, uh, the Constitution. But, Keith, the... Um, the ruling, I thought, from the Colorado Supremes was very originalist and very textualist of this uh, post-Civil War amendment. They, they focused their, uh, their opinion, it seemed, very much on that sort of reading of the Constitution. And uh, a similar decision from the Secretary of State of Maine did as well. It highlighted how the original founders of the 14th Amendment specifically adopted it at the time to prevent someone like Trump from serving in office. And yet there is this notion uh, that most people, uh, not necessarily me, but uh, many believe that uh, the, the most so-called conservative justices who have spent their careers inventing this whole originalist and textualist canard that they will somehow come up with a reason to avoid the originalist and textualist reading of the amendment to allow him to uh, remain on the ballot. Do you, do you agree that they will? And as a former Republican, can you help me square that circle in how they could possibly <laughs> justify that opinion? I think that they probably will, and I think that they will probably have to get very imaginative to do it and that it will look strained because it will be. It will look— uh, there's just. Yeah. Yeah, there's just no easy way to do this. You know, going back to the last question, could they be on the ballot? Mm -hmm. Because maybe something would change in between. Well, that would be like saying that a 25-year-old should be on the should be allowed on the ballot. What, what? On the possibility that maybe somehow there'll be a constitutional amendment to allow them to be president in between. Well, no, Keith. Let uh, me jump. Let me jump in and and push back on that. In fact, uh, as as the the, the Trump uh, brief argues. That is not something that is in the Constitution. There is no way to get over the 35-year-old uh, requirement to be president of the United States, whereas on this matter, there is actually something built in to the uh, section of the Constitution that would allow Congress to, uh, to waive that prohibition if they wanted to. Sure, sure there is. You can amend the Constitution to lower the age limit for president. Now, that seems incredibly unlikely. Ah. But then again, it seems incredibly unlikely that Congress, particularly this Congress, would by a two-thirds vote, you know, uh, re remove the disqualification of Donald Trump. So I just, you know, something rooted in nothing but absurd speculation really should not serve as a basis 
before the Supreme Court or anyone else uh, to make a decision on this. Well, they got to come up with something, Keith. Uh, does does anybody's <laughs> does anybody's argument about and because we've heard this a lot from both the right and the left, uh, you know that oh, it should be up to the voters. It's not. It shouldn't be up to the courts to decide on Donald Trump's fate. But uh, isn't the key matter here what the Constitution actually says, whether anyone actually likes that constitutional section or not? To be frank, you know, I think if Donald Trump were thrown off the ballot, uh, Nikki Haley would likely become the nominee. And I think she'd have an easier time beating Joe Biden than Donald Trump would. So it's not a matter of liking the Constitution. It says what it says. And it seems like love it or hate it. You know, it's very clear about disqualification for insurrectionists. So does anybody's opinion about, oh, the voters should decide, does that actually matter? The same people that went to the courts scores of times trying to keep Obama off the ballot on the absurd birther argument are now trying to say that the courts can't decide this. They let the courts decide it before. And, and no one argued then that the courts couldn't decide it. Not mm. even Obama argued that. Obama just argued that you lose on the facts, which they did. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, uh, the people attempting to remove Trump from the ballot have won on the facts. And, mm. you know, that makes it completely different. Uh, Lisa, I suspect there are other matters that you personally may or may not like in the Constitution. So does your personal opinion about any of this matter? More to the point, should the opinions of the Supreme Court justices on how much they may like or not like that amendment, should any of that matter? Well, I just I wanted to just pause for a second to underscore what Keith said and second what he said about this being as absurd as someone being 26 and saying they could run for president because maybe the Constitution will be amended to allow them to to hold office. It is such a clear argument. But the other part is, you know, the 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 radical Republicans back then, the Republicans who were trying to uh, protect the human rights of people in the country by adopting the 14th Amendment, they were well aware that in some of those former Confederate states, uh, some of those former Confederates would could run and win. Um, You know that they could run and win. They were the dominant leaders in those states. And so the idea that um, we should just let people who who broke their oath to our Constitution run because other people agree with them breaking the oath like that, like that defies the whole point of having this system of law being a, a nation built on the rule of law and having a notion that the highest oath that anyone can take is an oath to protect that Constitution. And so this notion that just because an insurrectionist could win, they should be allowed to win, is exactly why Section 3 of the 14th Amendment exists, mm. to prevent that scenario, and to bar people, to punish them, quite frankly, for attempting to overthrow the American government, attempting a coup, attempting to take over in defiance of the actual uh, Constitution, in defiance of the voters in the case of the 2020 election. So um, I do think there are things to be concerned about with the Supreme Court, given the fact that the so-called ethics code that Roberts unveiled has not prevented the corruption that's already been documented by numerous investigative reporters mm-hmm. in this past year and more. And so I think the public, you know, public, the, the Supreme Court is at the, its lowest confidence in history in terms of, you know, public polling about how people uh, view the court. And it's at great risk of further damaging and destroying its reputation um, as a check um, within our constitutional system of government if it were to put its thumb on the scale of justice and overturn the 
well-reasoned decision of the Colorado Supreme Court in Shanabello's uh, analysis as well in Maine as Secretary of State there. I know that some jurisdictions have not been willing to make that decision because there is a lot of public pressure and even you know threats of violence mm-hmm. uh, for judges and officials for standing up for our Constitution, standing up for um, our democracy. But the fact is, is that this court, in my view, has a duty, a duty to not impose its personal views, its political agenda, its political ties uh, in order to help Trump stay on the ballot. And in fact, we've already seen what happened in our country the last time the U.S. Supreme Court intervened on a partisan basis to try to stop votes from being counted. And that, and that's not a parallel. It's, it's actually the opposite scenario in Bush v. Gore, mm-hmm. where the Supreme Court intervened to stop those votes from being counted in Florida. And the result was that Bush became president, but Al Gore actually won the popular vote and would have won the electoral vote. Mm-hmm. In this instance, the court intervening would be different because it would be basically saying, um, sure, you can violate your oath to, to protect the Constitution. You can le- unleash violence on the Capitol to try to stop that vote from being counted, but you can still run for office. It basically would help move America toward the dictatorship that Trump has said he wants it to be. Which is, of course, hey, uh, his point. Yes, Keith. The same people who so sanctimoniously and hypocritically scream about let the people decide, ignore that Trump was installed in 2016 against the will of the people. The people voted for Hillary Clinton. It was not the people that chose Trump. It was the Electoral College. And can you imagine if Hillary Clinton had waged a campaign urging, you know, the then Vice President Biden to, as he was presiding over the Senate, to just throw out Electoral College votes to allow the popular winner in, what the entire MAGA movement would be saying about that? And the chance of lock her up would be heard again, and they would be more justified. Well, uh, I have good news then uh, for for the MAGA folks that uh, if if uh, Trump is successful on the next issue that is coming up to the uh, Supreme Court shortly, well, I guess it would be completely legal for Joe Biden to order. Uh, Kamala Harris to, in fact, declare that Joe Biden is the winner, even if Donald Trump gets more uh, electoral college votes. He's uh, Trump is now arguing in a separate appeal to the uh, to the courts that a president can never be charged with a crime. Uh, to paraphrase Richard Nixon, if the president does it, it's not a crime. Uh, that a president has complete and absolute immunity for anything that he wants to do while he's serving as president. If that is true, I guess Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can simply declare whoever they want to be the president. Uh, Trump is also arguing, among other things, that if you get acquitted uh, at your impeachment trial, even though in his case it was a bipartisan majority of the U.S. Senate who actually found him guilty if they didn't have enough votes to actually acquit, but they did find him guilty, 57-43. But he's arguing that you have legal immunity for all of those acts that a president does going forward. Uh, First, uh, Lisa, the lower court judge, uh, Tanya Chutkin, has denied Trump's claims that presidents are immune from being charged with crimes carried out during the presidency. That, too, seems absurd on its face, but that's what Trump is arguing. He's now appealing to a three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He's likely to lose there as well. 
Uh, if he does, he can then appeal to the full D.C. Circuit Court, I believe, and finally then to the Supreme Court and, and in the bargain, hold up the entire trial until after the election. And then he can make all this go away, of course. Is, is that the sum total of the presidential immunity strategy uh, to just make this go away? Or is there some sort of chance that one of the courts along the way may somehow agree with that claim? Well, I do think he's trying to run out the clock. That's been the strategy all along. Quite frankly, some of the arguments that have been made about immunity are arguments that even a first-year law student would be laughed out of the room for making because they're, they're so contrary to longstanding and well-respected legal precedents. Um, this idea that he's immune from, for everything, anytime at all, it's just literally a recipe for tyranny. It's, it's, it's just extraordinary. And it's extraordinary to, to, to see a person who was entrusted with um, you know, enforcing and protecting the Constitution even make such arguments, to be so shameless, and to have lawyers who are willing to um, make those arguments for him and, and try to um, nullify longstanding precedents. But also, they're, they're, I mean, I guess now I'm repeating myself, it's ridiculous. The idea that he can't be charged with crimes that he wasn't um, impeached for is exactly contrary to the arguments that were made during the impeachment, which was this notion that he could only he could only be impeached if he were convicted. So as as usual, the Trump team just wants to have it both ways anyway, and will do anything to win, no matter how absurd and how such how offensive it is to the rule of law and to our legal precedents. But that's exactly you know who he is and and the types of things that he'll do to try to grab power, stay in power, and keep from any legal accountability for his, you know, in my view, notorious and well-documented um, crimes and other violations of law. Keith, Barber, the uh, the D.C. Appeals Court has now asked Jack Smith and uh, Team Trump for briefing in response to an amicus brief, a uh, friend of the court brief, citing a 1989 unanimous opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court as written at the time by arch so-called conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, which argues that the denial of the absolute immunity claim is not actually appealable at all to the uh, to the Supreme Court or any court uh, before a trial because it is not based on a specific constitutional guarantee, such as the restriction on double jeopardy uh, that's in the Constitution itself, being tried for the same thing twice. You can't do that. That would hold up a, a trial. But that because this presidential immunity thing was largely dreamt up as part of U.S. v. Nixon, it's not an allowable appeal before the trial because it does not, uh, quote, rest upon an explicit statutory or constitutional argument that trial will not occur and that, quote, the appellate courts do not have jurisdiction to hear the appeal at this time. Is it possible that this whole immunity thing is uh, just rejected quickly out of hand on that basis to uh, then restart the January 6th trial? I think that it will be rejected on all the reasons that Lisa just gave us. Uh, the question is whether or not the Court of Appeals would add this one into it, which would give the Court of Appeals an excuse to say that we no longer stop the proceedings pending further review, uh, you know, potentially by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read the brief that Trump just filed, their, re their reply brief, it, they phoned it in. They didn't even really try. They just repeated the, all the old stuff. I think 
I'm going to call my shot on this one, Brad, that uh, when Trump appeals this one to the Supreme Court, it will be cert denied. So they won't even hear it. They'll, uh, they'll, they will not. They'll just go I, with There's no reason to. It's mm-hmm. not like this is a close call. If uh, So that would be the next step in any event. Well, they could go to the full en banc uh, hearing uh, at D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals. Then they'd have 45 days to put it before the Supreme Court. But can he just alone with those 45 days run out the clock uh, on the trial happening in time? Uh, well, there's certainly the March 4th date, but happening at all in time before the election this year? Well, that's what I'm wondering if that brief from American Oversight on that constitutional question, you know, that, that says that it only applies when the Constitution, as in the speech and debate clause, the double jeopardy clause, you know, says that immunity, you know, protects a person from even trial. Uh, that's why I'm hoping that if they they add that to the basis of the decision, they, they maybe get to tell Trump for that reason, you don't get your 45 days. Uh, Lisa Graves, uh, couldn't the uh, D.C. appeals court also just find against Trump, actually find against Smith on one small thing, one small part of this, and thus allow Smith the opportunity to petition the Supreme Court right away for cert uh, rather than having to wait for Trump to run out the 45-day clock? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a bunch of scenarios, as as you point out and as Keith pointed out, but ultimately this is the case that that the the appellate courts, the Supreme Court, and the other courts do not really have to rule on substantively, and it's not, and it's, and it's really, it lacks merit um, in such a way that you know it would be fully justified for the court, in essence, to duck on it. Although it would be helpful to have that reaffirmation, I just don't trust them to reaffirm um, with the sort of full force that the court did in the Nixon tapes case in terms of immunity. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to something you began with, though, though, Brad, which was this idea that, you know, the Trump legal team was saying this is the first time ever in history that a president has ever been subject to these, uh, you know, these sorts of um, this sort of litigation. And that's true and incomplete because it's the first time ever we've had a president right. who's engaged in such activity. So like this notion that this is so unprecedented is, is entirely the fault, the doing of the person who's claiming the lack of precedent, right. you know, through his very actions. Mm-hmm. And, and I have a theory that I like to ask both of you guys about. I wrote a little bit about this at Brad blog before the holiday. Uh, the theory is that the Supremes here, including the three appointed by uh, Donald Trump and the uh, other wildly corrupt ones, including uh, Lisa Graves, best friend, uh, Clarence Thomas, that in fact they could, if they wanted Uh, To quote Michael Corleone in The Godfather, settle all family business simply by rejecting Trump's immunity claim, whether they deny cert or whether they take it and and deny it uh, in a full opinion, and then allowing the states to, in fact, disqualify Trump from the ballot. It seems like it would solve a lot of problems for the Supreme Court themselves and that they have, frankly, little to lose. They've already got a six to three majority. They got lifetime appointments there. Uh, you know, Trump has been as much of a headache to them as everyone else. They could finally end that nightmare, settle all family business, if you will, uh, and in the bargain, perhaps win back, a, you know, a lot of the credibility that the court has lost in recent months and, and years, thanks to investigations from uh, people like you, Lisa Graves. Uh, do you see that as a as a possibility that they would actually use this opportunity to do exactly that? 
I, um, I have to say I, I'm concerned about it, not in the sense that I don't think the result would be correct, but in the sense that I, I think that John Roberts may be searching for ways to enhance the court's credibility. This uh, ruling, you know, in, in accordance with the language of the constitutional law, you know, could have that effect. Um, it would have some people, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. It would inflame others. And then the real, the real next scenario is what the Supreme Court does in later in 2024, when a, another round of this weaponization of the law is deployed to try to prevent um, votes from being counted. Um, I, I don't think we're out of the woods on what on the scenario that uh, happened in 2020 in terms of just an onslaught of litigation challenging the results. And then at that time, how will the court rule? Will that court uh, revert back to its sort of partisan nature that it's engaged in, like with the reversal of Roe versus Wade? Yeah. Will it actually, you know, defend our constitution, defend our our democracy, or will it do what it did in in 2000 uh, with with Bush and Gore, and in a you know an opinion that people believe was orchestrated by Scalia, uh, basically try to give the Republican the win. So and you. So you use a decision now to give them credibility to do a worse decision then. It is, I think, a real risk. So you're suggesting that even if in my uh, settle all family business scenario, Donald Trump is not even on the on the ballot because they allow the 50 states uh, or even order the 50 states to remove him from the from the ballot. You're suggesting that even in a scenario like that, where they do the right thing now in that regard, they may still do the wrong thing later because you think there will still be challenges to the results, even when Donald Trump is not on the ballot, if if that was the case? Well, I just don't, you know, we've just crossed into this no man's land in terms of, you know, the respect for uh, the results of elections. And they certainly have done everything they can since that January 6th speech where Donald Trump was trying to change the rules for elections and map out a plan, not just the plan to, to go march on the Capitol and stop the vote, but also a plan to change the rules, change who gets to make the say in states on election results and more. And so they were trying to set up a long-term strategy to have the levers in place in order to um, do as they wish, have, a, have the party do as they wish, regardless of the voters' votes mm-hmm. in the next round, which is this, this fall election. And so we are just not out of the woods. Um, even if Trump is not um, at the helm of that party, no matter what happens with the court, he still has loyalists, uh, people who have not been willing to part from him, no matter the crimes he's been charged with. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we are not out of the woods from having that party, that MAGA party that has been so beholden to him, continue to try to use these levers or other levers to try to retain power, secure power. And, you know, who knows how they might act. I just think uh, I regret to say that we're in such a land of uncertainty, it should be much clearer. But in fact, they've managed to unmoor so many things that we all thought, so many people thought were sure and were steady. And so I just don't trust, no matter who is the nominee, that the party itself won't continue this track of trying to win at all costs, at any cost. I would uh, tend to agree with you on that concern. Uh, Keith, do you have any uh, thoughts on my uh, settle all family business theory? Would you like me to would you like to tell me how I'm uh, completely nuts to even be think such an optimistic scenario? Uh, it's pretty optimistic. I'll say I, I don't know how the, the court is going to rule on that 14.3 thing. 
I think that they'll find a way to rule for Trump, but I don't know. And on the, you know, the presidential immunity thing, like I said already, I don't think the Supreme Court is even going to take the time to, mm. to mess with it because it's so dumb. Uh, so there but, are, are there any other, you know, this, yeah, go ahead. This, this broader question of, you know, whether or not the court will take this opportunity, you know, to end the Trump threat to American democracy. I think that there's a significant branch of the court that endorses his killing American democracy. Mm. Do you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the guys that he appointed, the, the people he appointed and Clarence Thomas, who, you know, and that's, Four people that can get a, a question heard before the Supreme Court that can grant cert. So, mm. you know, I, I, Thomas would not vote against Trump for anything. I, I, I Lisa, can you imagine a circumstance no. where Thomas would vote <laughs> against Trump? I can't. <laughs> and and I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Keith. Well, uh, of course. Under the all uh, settle all family business uh, scenario, he could do the right thing as well and just recuse, and then he wouldn't have to vote against him. Uh, very quickly, I want to hit one or two more points before we got to get out here. Uh, Lisa, as someone who has worked as a deputy assistant attorney general at the DOJ, was Merrick Garland just too slow here? Is he to blame for the fact that we're in this land of uncertainty, as you describe, but not just a land of uncertainty. We're in a land of we're in a time of uncertainty when these all all of these matters sort of need to be settled in time before the next election so that Americans know well, as you know, to quote Nixon again, whether their president is a crook. Is is he to blame or does this just how long it takes uh, complicated criminal matters like this? Well, you know, I always hate to be a money morning quarterback on on things, but I I certainly wish it had happened that that the process had happened more quickly. But then when you see also what's happening in the states, it just it it's just apparent that it takes time to build these cases, to do it right, to make sure you've got everything locked down and the evidence. And I do think that the appointment of Jack Smith um, was the was the right decision, even though. Um, it would have, you know, it didn't happen earlier in the term. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it does take a substantial amount of time. There's a, there's a song, <laughs> there's a song I heard this great blues song about karma and how you're always wishing that it would move more quickly. I think that's probably generally true across the board, but uh, it is what it is. And so this is the scenario we're in, but also there's a part of me that thinks that part of Trump's running isn't just to run, but in order to try to, but also not just to try to win, but also to try to keep himself out of legal jeopardy to use yeah. the running for office as a shield to try to prevent him from being held accountable. And so, you know, everything is a tool for Trump to manipulate. This is just another tool for him to manipulate. And unfortunately, I think no matter when, you know, other than the very first year, no matter when uh, Garland or Smith would have been appointed or what have you, you know, we'd likely still be somewhere in this ballpark and he would still be running and trying to use running as an excuse for being off the hook for any trials. Very quickly, uh, Keith, there is a case that the Supreme Court has accepted, um, you know, concerning obstructing a federal government proceeding that, in fact, uh, there is one court who has said regarding uh, January 6 defendants that using the obstruction uh, statute is inappropriate because it was written, in fact, for financial crimes. It should not be used obstructing, uh, obstruction of a federal government proceeding, blocking the certification of the Electoral College. It should not be used against January 6 insurrectionists. 
the Supreme Court has decided to hear that case. In fact, two of the four charges that Trump is facing are based on that obstruction statute. Should we be concerned that uh, the Supremes will toss out the use of that law against the January 6th defendants, including Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah, I think you should be a little concerned, and I'm not sure how much. But, you know, and keep in mind that the one judge that ruled, as you said, was over, overruled by the, the circuit court. Right. And all the circuit courts have, have ruled in favor of the prosecution on this. And yet the Supreme and Court you, picked it up. Yeah, and the Supreme Court has picked it up. And I'll tell you that, you know, I've a couple of times walked through the pro-J6 argument on this, if you will, the, the pro-defendant argument on this. Very convoluted reasoning, but on the other hand, there is this long-standing principle for interpreting criminal law that says if there is any ambiguity in a criminal statute, that ambiguity is interpreted in favor of the defendant, and the due process demands that mm-hmm. because the law must give fair and clear notice any potential defendants of what would be wrongful conduct. And that has been the standard that the circuit courts have reviewed, and, yep. and they, have, they have found in favor of the prosecution anyway. But there is – that principle allows – gives the Supreme Court an excuse uh, to, to maybe apply the, the pro-defendant interpretation on this. Mm, which, uh, even if they went along with my settle-all-family business uh, argument, they could still could come in and say, sure, you can try them, but not for these two uh, charges, two of the four charges. I'm short on time. We're going to have to pick this up, uh, and I suspect we'll have uh, good cause to in the year ahead. Uh, thank you both for uh, holding my hand, uh, bringing me back into this uh, 2024. I suspect we're going to be bothering you a whole lot more in the days and months ahead. Lisa Graves is the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org. And Keith Barber is a contributor over at Daily Coast on legal and constitutional matters. They are both very smart and may help us uh, save 2024 somehow. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you both. Thanks. Thank Thank you, Brett. Okay, quick break. And we are back with Desi Doyen's return and the latest Green News report. Straight ahead on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Okay, I have enough trouble doing this show when it's Desi and me in the studio, much less me alone. But we did figure out a way to get you our latest green news report. While we were out. The climate crisis, it isn't somewhere in the distant future. It's here. It's arrived. Happy 2024. December 2023 was the hottest on record and 2023 was the hottest year ever. Warmer winter causing snow drought in the U.S. Plus. We must act and act decisively. 
That's from Nixon's 1972 message to Congress on the environment. The Endangered Species Act turns 50. All of those endangerments and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The question isn't whether we are going to avoid dangerous climate change. It's here. The question is how bad are we willing to let it get? Well, I think that question has already been answered over the last, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years. But Happy New Year! This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we have been off for a while. You are here battling through COVID to uh, get us all caught up. What did we miss while we were away? Well, December 2023 was officially the hottest December ever recorded by a large margin since record-keeping began in the mid-1800s. Every month since June set a new monthly global heat record due to man-made climate change. And, as predicted, 2023 is officially the hottest year ever recorded, surpassing the prior record set in 2016 and also likely in the the last 125,000 years, according to Japan's climate service, that turbocharged deadly and costly extreme weather disasters across the planet, with record-breaking storms, floods, droughts, and wildfires often in surprising locations. Climate scientists warn that 2024 is likely to set a new global heat record as El Nino conditions peak in coming months. Here in the U.S., the record warm December meant that parts of Minnesota were 15 degrees Fahrenheit above normal for the month. But that warmth is causing a snow drought across western states with more rain than snow. That is an existential threat for the winter outdoor recreation industry. Ski resorts are trying to figure out their future as environmentalists warn of ecological impacts from the heavy use of snowmaking machinery. Lack of snow also threatens drought this summer for states that rely on snowpack for water. Warmer winters also impact crops that require cold temperatures and wild plants that are fooled into budding too soon, affecting birds and animals that depend on their timing. So it's not just people who are wondering what the hell is going on. It's birds and everything else. Yep. But future global warming impacts can be reduced with swift, sustained political action, according to climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann on CNN. It's doable. The obstacles are not physical. They're not technological. At this point, They're still only political, and political obstacles can be overcome. Can they? Can they? Bloomberg News reports that mild winter temperatures, among the warmest in years, are lowering demand for polluting natural gas, cutting global market prices by 35 percent over last January. Hmm. In other news, while we were out, France enacted a law requiring solar panels or green roofs on all new commercial buildings. Canada announced it would require all new cars to be zero emissions by 2035. Here in the U.S., a federal district court ruled that the landmark youth climate lawsuit Juliana v. United States, which seeks to force the U.S. government to act faster on climate change, will finally proceed to trial Eight years after it was filed. Better late than never. Multnomah County, Oregon, sued ExxonMobil and more than a dozen other fossil fuel companies seeking damages for costs it incurred during the 2021 heat emergency that killed nearly 70 residents. 
In Massachusetts, the country's first large offshore wind project, Vineyard Wind, officially began sending power to the New England grid. When all 62 turbines are completed in coming years, the project will generate electricity for nearly half a million homes. Nice. Thanks, Joe Biden. And finally, December 2023 marked the 50th anniversary of the groundbreaking Endangered Species Act. Signed by Republican President Richard Nixon, the act has prevented the extinction of hundreds of imperiled species and promoted the recovery of many others. Nixon's remarks at the time underscore the difference with today's Republican Party. Clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. To guarantee that birthright, we must act and act decisively. He was a Republican, you say? Yep. Imagine that. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Pandora, TuneIn, Apple, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Take care of that COVID, will you? <laughs> This has been your Green News Report. Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd <sighs> Yes, they were. Got to get out. Uh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Get well soon. Also, thanks to Lisa Graves of True North Research and Keith Barber of Daily Coast, as well as all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Or me, if you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. All made possible by those of you kind enough to help us stay on your public airwaves with a donation at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you here next time, whenever that may be. Thanks for understanding. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.